Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak, your go-to podcast for meaningful conversations with influential leaders from different sectors every week. All episodes are available at ageofpersonalization.com, where you will find more content about leadership, strategy, and innovation. So if you enjoy the content and relate to it, please join the movement and help us spread the word. Hit the like button below. Share it with colleagues. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and social media at Glenn Yopis so that you can be in touch with the most recent content about leadership in the age of personalization. Now, this week, our guest, Paul Pavlou, is the dean of the Bauer College of Business at the University of Houston. You see, Paul was recognized among the world's most influential scientific minds by Thomas Reuters, and his research has been cited over 51,000 times by Google Scholar. You see, Paul enjoys solving for open-ended problems that require new and novel ideas by doing things that are fundamentally different. Now, together, we will discuss how to prepare students for jobs that don't yet exist through a cross-disciplinary approach to higher education and how to use the advancements of technology to create highly personalized curriculum. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Paul, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you very much, uh, Glenn, uh, uh, Scott, uh, and I very much appreciate the very kind and very generous introduction. Appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. And it's not uh, difficult um, to speak about you that way because uh, clearly you come to higher education uh, with that sense of uh, novel navigation. And we're going to talk about how that plays out uh, throughout our conversation today. But, Paul, Let's get started with this question. How does one go about doing things that are fundamentally different? Uh, that's a very good question. And that's something that uh, uh, I always aspire to do. So um, meaning uh, in a very simple terms, you know, how can we make things better? How can we transform? Uh, how can we do things uh, you know, using uh, a different mindset? And that's uh, what I I try to bring to my job in higher education, in, uh, in business school education, and I can provide several examples of uh, what things we have been doing or uh, planning to do. But I think uh, the basic idea is to, to do two things. Internally, to have this intellectual curiosity and say, yes, we can do things better. Uh, yes, we can learn. Uh, we can use technology. We can use different ways of doing things and fundamentally try to change uh, how uh, things are done. And this can be at the individual level, you know, transforming individuals and trying to make them you know, better people, uh, transforming organizations. Uh, I think that's a very important how we can engage in a digital transformation, how we can make organizations you know, obviously more efficient, more effective, and also more ethical and uh, uh, you know, more caring and more uh, you know, helpful. 
And then third, uh, how we can make society uh, and everything else around us better. So yes, you know, we can, uh, uh, you know, and how we can find different ways. I mean, obviously, uh, technology has been a great force, uh, and for you know, the, for the most part, uh, has been helpful with the internet, the ability to communicate, uh, ability to automate, uh, and we can actually say that has helped us quite a bit. Uh, very recently, with the data, we can actually analyze and uh, make sense of data and see how we can, you know, make the the future better. Uh, and uh, and many other ways that if we, if we see things differently, we can do uh, even better. And of course, the second part, which is probably the most challenging, at least uh, to me, is actually from a leadership perspective, is like, how do we convey to all these entities, of course, individuals, organizations, society, that you know, we can do better? How do we instill this, uh, you know, this notion of, that, uh, of uh, positive uh, change that we can make uh, everything around us better? It's, it's interesting how society now has become a dependent variable in the conversation, right? I mean, in, in the past, sure, I mean, we always thought about the importance of society, but it's now really part of every conversation that we have. So on that note, here's my follow-up question. Tell me about some of your life experiences, Paul, that made you a better leader. Uh, I, I would say two things that uh, uh, actually, and hopefully we can relate them back to uh, to our conversation. I mean, the first one I think is uh, one is a global uh, mindset that uh, I try to instill, of course, in our students, in our organization, and of course, you know, you know throughout uh, our uh, you know journey as a as a higher education uh, institution. So uh, I mean, I come from a you know a tiny country. Uh, sometimes it's called Cyprus. It's a tiny island in the Mediterranean. Uh, you have to see a, a big map to actually see it. Most maps of the world don't actually have it. Uh, so, uh, but I have visited uh, uh, more than uh, 65 or so uh, countries, and I love traveling uh, and also, you know, reading about uh, you know, things uh, around the world and understanding the differences and the similarities across, uh, uh, you, know, you know, different aspects. So, uh, this global mindset is something that uh, I believe is very important. It has a, you know, at least personally to me, a transformational impact. Uh, as part of our own strategy plan, uh, we try to instill this uh, global mindset to our students. Uh, and yes, it's a bit uh, more difficult the last year because we, have, we are not able to travel, but uh, with technology, we can do quite a bit in terms of uh, you know, bringing people together from around uh, 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 the globe. Um, the, the second thing that uh, also I think is uh, important uh, is also the importance of higher education. And uh, my life uh, has been transformed by higher education. I mean, I had aspiration to be a professional basketball player that didn't work out uh, as well as I was uh, hoping. But uh, because of higher education, because of uh, scholarships, uh, I mean, initially I got the Fulbright scholarship, and that was the only way I could leave, uh, you know, a small country and come to the U.S. and get, uh, you know, really high quality education. Uh, and you know, because of that, you know, part of my job here is to give back. I really believe that. that uh, you know, helping uh, students uh, uh, with uh, scholarships and uh, with uh, higher education uh, is uh, is very important. Can have a, a very strong transformative impact on uh, on their lives. So this is actually what uh, you know personally drives me to uh, you know to try to give back and try to create an opportunity for uh, you know, for individuals. You know, it's uh, I've often said that uh, those that um, have had uh, this global mindset, the fact that you were uh, born and raised in Cyprus, uh, tells us already that 
for you, uh, you understand the importance of survival, renewal, and reinvention. Uh, you understand uh, what uh, adversity could look like and feel like. Uh, how would you define the landscape of transformation in higher education today, Paul? Uh, actually, I would say that uh, we're undergoing a, a, a fundamental transformation in higher education, and it, it was already underway uh, when I say before COVID, basically in the sense of uh, you know, both the mode of instruction that is actually quite, uh, uh, you know, important for higher education, how we actually teach uh, uh, students. But I, I wish i say that uh, the importance of uh, technology, uh, data, and uh, even kind of more advanced technologies in the form of uh, artificial intelligence, you know, changes uh, quite substantially what we teach our students and how we prepare them for the future. So, I mean, for example, one statistic I'd like, or at least prediction I'd like to share with people is that by 2030, which is not very far away, if you think about it, in a, you know, less than a decade, uh, about 50% of the jobs that exist today may not exist. So how do we prepare students now, or at least in you know, two, three years, uh, you know, during their tenure at the university uh, to, you know, for jobs that don't exist yet? Uh, and, uh, you know, how they can actually transform themselves or be, you know, flexible and resilient in the wake of these uh, changes that, that exist uh, around us. So I think uh, what we actually teach and, of course, how we teach it and the format of instruction are two very powerful forces that uh, we need to, uh, to address. And the third, the more practical aspect has always been an issue. I think it's going to continue to be one, of course, is the the cost and uh, of uh, higher education. That's always an issue with you know, student debt, especially in, this, uh, uh, in the United States. Uh, and that's why I think mentioned earlier, scholarships are very important. Uh, I mean, I fundamentally believe that higher education is something that's an investment uh, on, uh, on people. And uh, uh, if we can actually keep at least the cost and accessibility cost low, accessibility high, and the flexibility of higher education, we can invest more in, uh, in people and give them the uh, other resources they, they need to succeed. You know, you, you've mentioned data and, and technologies, and we're going to get to those in a moment. But what, what do you think is, uh, are, are the barriers uh, to, towards transformation in higher education? And, and, and I'm, I'm asking you this question from the viewpoint of what would you share with your peers in higher education that might not have a plan? Well, I mean, of course, uh, you know, higher education is a, one of the most well-established uh, industries have been around for, you know, centuries and they haven't uh, changed uh, dramatically. And uh, I'm sometimes joking with my colleagues is that, uh, you know, even back in the Socrates era in ancient Greece, uh, you know, almost uh, 20, more than 2,500 years ago, it was the same mode of instruction. You know, a, a professor was sitting, uh, uh, you know, albeit you know, outdoors at, at that time, uh, you know, teaching the students. And uh, 2,500 years uh, uh, later, not much has changed. Yes, we have PowerPoints. Now we have actually, uh, you, know, you know, Zoom or virtual technology to help us. But the mode hasn't changed uh, that dramatically. I mean, granted, you know, there was a lot of uh, uh, you know, changes, obviously, in what we teach. And that's, I guess, that brings us to this notion of technology and data. But basically, we need to adapt uh, as, 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 a, as a sector in the economy that we have to be you know, much more uh, um, you know, preemptive as to how technology, how data, how the world that changes around us. And you know, being, of course, uh, you know, a dean at a professional school, I really 
put a lot of perspective on like, why we need to prepare students for the jobs of tomorrow. Yes, obviously we need to also prepare them for the jobs of today because you know, we need to uh, you know, have employment, but more, you know, how do we prepare them for the next you know, 10, 20, 30, and careers these days can be 50 and 60 years. How do we prepare them now or how do we create that notion of flexibility and uh, that um, you know, innate uh, um, curiosity to continue to learn? So that this is what do we, we need to do uh, to you know to be you know to really provide this value to our students. So uh, and that's why we need to be continuously you know connected with the real world. In our case, the business community, with industry, and kind of be more like uh, thinking ahead. What do we need to do to to stay one step ahead. So through our research, uh, through our new uh, our programs, and different ways to uh, prepare our students uh, uh, better. You know for the jobs of tomorrow. So where do you see the uh, where do you see how partnerships with uh, with uh, across sectors will change uh, for you at the business school? I mean, we need to take a different approach at this, don't we? Absolutely. Yeah. So one thing I, um, I mentioned the global mindset. That's one you know general aspect that I need to instill. The, the second one actually is the, this notion of uh, cross disciplinary education. And uh, we're all, I guess I would say in business schools, uh, somewhat siloed, I would say even somewhat siloed within our business disciplines between finance, accounting, and marketing. Uh, but I would say even as business schools, to some extent, we have been siloed from the rest of the university, the rest of uh, you know, disciplines around us. And that's uh, this cross-disciplinary mindset is uh, what I really want to uh, instill in our students. Uh, and uh, uh, basically, I'd like to have partnerships and uh, joint programs with, uh, I would say, virtually every you know, area on campus. Uh, and uh, I see business as you know, being part of uh, everything that we do around us, uh, whether it's engineering and how we use engineering uh, designs, principles uh, to and find their commercialization or business application uh, to the arts, uh, to, to law, to medicine. Uh, virtually every uh, place on campus can have you know, some strong connection with uh, business. So that's something that I've been working on. Um, for example, uh, entrepreneurship is one area that uh, you know I'm personally uh, you know very excited about. And of course, entrepreneurship can you know relate to any other aspect of business. So I'm hoping that entrepreneurship will be one way to connect with uh, other aspects on uh, on campus. Uh, I mean, I mentioned you mentioned analytics, the technology, data. I mean, those are connected to mathematics, to statistics, to engineering, uh, technology. So that's why I would like to see more uh, partnerships, more joint uh, programs. I was very happy today, actually, we're working on uh, uh, um, a joint program with computer science on uh, the management of artificial intelligence. Uh, I mean, I uh, very much look forward to having this uh, you know, specialized uh, uh, program. We have discussions and uh, uh, programs with, uh, I would say, virtually uh, every part of, uh, of the university. And, I would like to have this, you know, uh, cross-disciplinary uh, mindset in all of our students. Uh, even within our MBA, our Master's in Business Administration, uh, I, ideally, I'd like to have a joint uh, dual degrees with, uh, I would say, as, my, as many uh, you know, dual degrees as possible. So, and the reason is, is twofold. Yes, I believe that you know, doctors and uh, lawyers and engineers and scientists, you know, would benefit by having an, you know, an MBA degree, some business degree. Uh, a training to help them advance their careers, especially later on to be in management, to be in leadership. 
But also I would like our MBA classrooms to have doctors, nurses, lawyers, uh, and having a true multidisciplinary uh, uh, you know, class. And I think that way will make our, our classes you know, much more uh, uh, involved, much more uh, diverse. And uh, I mean, I see all business challenges today uh, to be truly multidisciplinary. So in that sense, if we can, you know, through our training, provide this very unique environment for our students, I think uh, they would be prepared to address these very global and very, you know, multidisciplinary challenges. So, so Paul, or excuse me, Scott, I'm hearing convergence from Paul. What are you hearing? Um, well, I got a couple things. I think I'm going to leave for just a moment, Paul. I'm going to I'm going to save, and I want to hear more uh, uh, about for the in the coming uh, in your coming comments a little bit more about this this interdisciplinarity um, that that is so like such a cornerstone to to your approach. Uh, but I just want to learn a little bit more because I want to engage with you a little bit on that later. But maybe first, what I'll do is just remind us and 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 just. Uh, at least for me, remember how we got to this point and why interdisciplinarity is now part of the conversation and it keeps circling back and back uh, because that's not a mistake. Uh, that's one of, I think, Paul's uh, sort of uh, PowerPoints. So here we go. And not PowerPoints is in button pushing PowerPoints, but points of power. So here we go. This is just a quick one, uh, Glenn. Uh, so, so Paul, what I'm seeing uh, really is that you are um, – on the meta level, it seems like you're going for intentional connectivity across everything that you do, right? Um, and I use the word intentional connectivity largely because Glenn and I have been talking about connectivity over and over again as, as a really crucial theme for the, the leadership in the age of personal, uh, uh, personalization. And just to wrap up quickly, ultimately, you talked about sort of two sort of, two sort of your ethos is kind of a partnership of two different types of or two different approaches towards or two different versions of an ethos. The one was the aspiration to transform, right? But that's something that's just within you and that kind of fuels it. So that's part of your ethos. And what I liked about that is that you're talking about the intellectual curiosities, not just of the individual, right? Not just of the discipline, but of the whole collective as society. And I think that that's a, a critical piece. And then the other thing that I think that maybe we dropped a little bit and that we need to underline, we don't have to go back to it, but let's underline it so as we move forward. And that's communication. And that's where the connectivity started for me because you're talking about communication, right? Um, as both leadership, it's something leadership has to do, right? So communication as a leadership doesn't mean just telling people what you want to do. It literally means connecting with the people. And that's really what your aspiration to transform has, has informed, I think, I think that's how it's informed your connectivity. The last quick one is just your global mindset, right? And we'll come back to that because that's just the preface for what I think inspired this interdisciplinary ethos that, that's within you. So, so uh, we'll, we'll go ahead. Let's pass it back to, to Glenn for a second because uh, I'm going to let my interdisciplinarity and the global mindset and the Fulbright kind of spin a little bit before I come back to it. Have Thanks. you ever had Thank any you very much. So, 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 Paul, have you ever had an on-the-spot assessment of what you were saying? Uh, that was actually a very nice uh, summary. So I couldn't have done it uh, so well. So, but oh, you actually did it better. I just, I just tried to like make it, make it uh, stick for, for for Glenn and I, but but you did it much better. So I appreciate it. <laughs> so, uh, so, so, take us down. Go, let's go deep here, uh, Paul, with your passion around information sciences. Uh, first of all, why did you explore that discipline 
But in how does it how does it give you as the dean and the University of of Houston's uh, C.T. Bauer School uh, of Business a competitive edge? Because it's clear that data analytics is what is at the core of your transformation, if I didn't misunderstand you. Uh, well, very, I mean, uh, very good points and good questions. So, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, information sciences is a, is a broader field dealing with technology. And the more recently, you know, there's a stronger focus, as you said, on analytics and, uh, uh, you, know, you know, more broadly, more advanced technologies, including artificial intelligence and they, you know, the great transformative potential it has on uh, individuals and organizations and, you know, eventually on uh, society. So, uh, I mean, obviously that's one of the areas that, that we're, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we try to instill in the curriculum, uh, try to work with uh, companies to see what is the potential in, uh, uh, in uh, real life. So in, the, in that uh, uh, sense, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, being in, from that discipline, it does uh, help uh, in terms of, you know, having the basic understanding, uh, you know, conducting research in those uh, areas. And mm -hmm. the applications are quite vast. Uh, for example, we have applications, obviously, uh, in healthcare, we have applications in mm. you know mo most aspects of business from uh, fintech uh, these days uh, mm. on uh, you know accounting analytics and accounting has become increasingly more uh, you know analytics and data driven. Uh, of course, you know marketing with digital marketing and the social media we're actually much more uh, uh, you know uh, reliant on uh, on data. And of course, uh, you know, there is uh, increasingly more and more users, especially as uh, we're discussing, you know, bringing more disciplines and more aspects from, uh, you know, the outside the traditional uh, business uh, uh, disciplines. So this is actually where we see the, you know, the great transformation in organizations, they're undergoing uh, this digital transformation. Uh, increasingly, we see, uh, you know, societies uh, are also, uh, you know, gradually, but, uh, you know, steadily, you know, being uh, transformed because of technology. Uh, because of data, and I think we're still at the very early stage of what is the potential, you know, out there. So I still think that you know being at the forefront of that, you know, makes things you know very exciting, and you know, hopefully we can be you know you know, you know playing a you know a positive role in this overall transformation. You now, Paul, as I as I hear you, and by the way, I I agree. We're 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 still in the very early stages. If I can maybe take this take the intensity of this call just a bit and ask you this question. What, what changes from 2020 uh, surprised you the most, either by being more prepared or less prepared than you expected? Well, uh, actually, I think uh, uh, the, uh, you guys, you know, obviously, I assume you mean the, the pandemic, yes. how it has changed yes. the, the, you know, the, the, kind of the more of a, the virtual interactions that we have been having for the last uh, almost 13 months. Yep. So uh, I think I was quite surprised uh, by, you know, the, the level of preparedness that we have had as society, at least the more advanced societies in the world, that in the sense that, uh, you know, we're able to continue uh, Conducting businesses, uh, you know, our, you know, our transactions, and uh, you know, the whole economy has uh, around the world has, uh, you know, remained steady. I was actually quite surprised by that. The fact that uh, you know, most organizations, including ours, have, were able within, I would say, days to be able to transform and be almost virtual, uh, and uh, uh, so that, that had actually, you know, surprised me quite a bit. Uh, the second part is was the. Uh, and I guess Scott mentioned this, you know, the communication, the connectivity. 
uh, I mean, despite being, I mean, for the most part, virtual, uh, you know, people have adapted quite well. I mean, obviously, we don't have the, the social, the personal interaction that we all, you know, like to see more of. Uh, but still, I, I think we're able to adapt uh, quite uh, uh, well. So, um, uh, you know, obviously, I, I mean, we're focused on the positives. Actually, there are quite a few negatives, obviously, for people in terms of isolation and in terms of other aspects. So there are quite a few challenges that, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, have affected people, of course, people who have been sick and, uh, you know, have, you know, several people, unfortunately, passing away. So there are some, you know, obviously many negative things. but. I think the, the, the more exciting thing that how things will get in, what's going to be this new normal? I think that will be the, the biggest question there. Like, what, what are we going to do different, even if we don't have to do many things virtual? Uh, you know, at what point would we say, okay, certain, you know, let's say, I know, assuming we can actually have this podcast in a face to face, do we say, okay, will we do that? Or this is actually, you know, a better way to do that? Or, um, even conferences uh, that uh, you know, have been virtual and everybody was complaining, well, why do I go to a conference that it's, uh, I don't see people? Uh, and basically they say, well, you know, conferences have become truly global uh, as opposed to local, uh, and also they can work around the clock. Uh, so there are some things that, uh, uh, you know, we'll see how organizations will, uh, you know, will, will change, you know, saying, well, do we need to go back to our office? Or uh, I was talking to people, even our, uh, you know, you can see behind me all of our, you know, amazing large campus and say, do we actually need such a big campus with so many buildings? Will we, you know, even if we, you know, eventually or hopefully we'll be able to use them, you know, safely, you know, will we need so many, you know, physical infrastructure and parking and all these different things? Uh, so, or, you know, some things will become more virtual and we're going to like, you know, or, you know, there's more efficiency and flexibility. Or will we go back to you know many of our previous ways? So I think that would be an interesting thing for individuals. I mean, what level of social interaction we prefer or this virtual interaction? Because we're still communicating quite well, but not at the, the personal level, uh, or at least the you know the, the you know, face-to-face interaction. And then how organization will become more virtual uh, as well. And I guess to our point, since we like to talk about society, and I do, uh, you know, will we have like more virtual societies? And will that make uh, you know, communication and connectivity, you know, obviously easier because, you know, it's, you know, I, I can connect with people from around the world uh, very easily. I don't have to travel. I don't have to, you know, to, you know, physically visit. And that may actually make things uh, easier. Actually, another thing that uh, um, I would say that in terms of, and that would be an interesting, uh, uh, you know, I would say sociological experiment, you know, I would becoming more comfortable with this medium of interaction. Uh, there's always a discussion that, you know, the face-to-face was the best way. And I still believe, uh, at least personally, that's the case. But, you know, do we need to see each other so much? Or, you know, can we have the same level of, you know, connectivity, at least at the professional level, uh, if we just see each other virtually? So that's something I think uh, people might, uh, and society might adjust to some uh, degree. So a lot of open questions. Uh, and But uh, I think it will be, a, you know, kind of, an interesting experiment how the next uh, year will be. Absolutely. You know, uh, you know, Paul, as I was listening to you, um, and I'd love to get your, your take on this. I, I can tell you that, you know, personally, I feel that uh, we're flattening hierarchy, that uh, we're learning that we need each other more than ever. And I mean, just if I can be so transparent to our listeners, uh, I had the good fortune 
of connecting with you on LinkedIn. And, and I also had the good fortune that you trusted that why I was reaching out for you to you was for the right reasons. I think we've uh, come to learn that we can navigate and build human relationships uh, in, in ways that are enabled by technology. But I believe it also means that we need to be back to a word that you used before, interdisciplinary and to, to, to know how to communicate in a way that uh, gets to the point and where someone could see themselves in, uh, in the content that's being shared to be able to then trust whether it's worth somebody's time. In other words, I'm finding that we're all able to actually discover each other in ways that maybe weren't accepted in society uh, in the past. Any comments about that? And Scott, I'd love for you to comment on that too. Well, I don't know, Scott, you want to take this? Uh, oh, you first, uh, Paul, I'd love to hear you first. Uh, yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, no, I think that's, a, that's something that uh, um, uh, would be very exciting in, uh, to, to observe and study in the next uh, few years uh, in terms of uh, how interpersonal uh, you know, communications uh, uh, you know, take place. Uh, you know, how, how much we can rely on this medium to, uh, to communicate. And, I mean, there is actually, you know, without getting too theoretical, it's you know, whole idea of media richness and, you know, some media, including the face-to-face -face, might be richer and you can, uh, but basically I think that, that can be something that can, you know, change so people can feel that, well, you know, these, let's say, virtual interaction or with additional ways to, uh, to communicate, you know, might be sufficient for, you know, quite a few, you know, interpersonal, uh, 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 you know, communications. So, and of course, obviously, it's much more efficient and especially for professional purposes. And bringing back to the, I would say, the business domain, I mean, many, you know, consultants say, well, we don't need to visit uh, physically clients anymore. You know, it's actually much more efficient and people are comfortable with this medium. And yeah. uh, that is kind of very rapid one year uh, training, you know, how to, you know, engage uh, virtually. So that may actually change, you know, quite a bit some of the, this interpersonal interaction. Yeah. So uh, also, uh, I would say the other thing on the negative side, actually, some people actually feel very uncomfortable yeah, meeting people in person. Uh, to some extent, uh, I find it somewhat uh, intimidating at first uh, yeah. in terms of you know getting back into the real world and actually seeing the real people in front of you. Uh, so that's something that I think uh, will also be uh, as we kind of create some kind of a new normal that's hopefully you know more interpersonal and more face to face. So so that would be an interesting. Uh, um, you know, uh, ways are both interpersonal and business and other aspects of uh, human relations that uh, take place. Thank Glenn, you. Arvind diagram on that would be the, the, the access part. And that, that one, one thing for sure that I don't want to lose is that I have noticed even with teaching, but in other parts of my life too, that aren't necessarily part of the education that, that I've been able to uh, bring in people as actually much, much more collaborative, much more partner level, much more collaborative levels um, who, who before uh, this electronic approach when you could show your video or if you were feeling like you couldn't, you could turn it off or where you could just phone in on that day or whatnot, that that actually has allowed some voices that I used to work with to get louder, but in the best possible ways. Uh, so I think that that's where our Paul and Weiss Venn diagram work on this thought about this, the, the technology and communication and what we think about it. The only thing I'd like to add is that, you know, it's literally uh, redefining a couple things. 
uh, because really, you know, behavioralists will tell us that, you know, in about 90 days, if you do a behavioral change for about 90 days, that that's about your, your chances of success in keeping that behavior change has just skyrocketed, that, that, that we as humans adapt, right? And so, so that's like what Paul is saying, right? Paul, you're saying we're doing that, we're adapting, we're learning, and what, what, what will come of this? And so I think the exciting thing is that not only are we relearning and adapting how we might use this for great purposes like access, but we're also redefining what face-to-face -face engagement means. And we're realizing that it has a far more important point and a far more important mission and potential than literally just getting around and, and saving ideas for the water cooler slash saving the ideas for a big meeting every other Thursday. But literally, why is it and when is it do we need to come together as people face to face? And if we can, if we can be more efficient with our time face to face, right? We're gonna we're gonna probably enjoy it a little bit more. Those those long meetings might kind of get a little more fun. <laughs> anyway, what do you think, Glenn? Well, Thanks. <laughs> One thing I'd like to just uh, uh, build on uh, Scott's excellent point. Uh, actually, for many people, actually, this medium might be actually more attractive. Uh, actually, for example, I'll give you two examples of students. Uh, so some students actually always, uh, you know, are worried about, uh, you know, they're shy. They don't want to talk in, the, you know, in the classroom. They find this medium actually much more easy, you know, much more convenient, much more, you know, uh, you know welcoming to actually talk. Uh, the other thing that uh, you know, somewhat uh, they don't like to talk still, even virtually, uh, they like to chat. So even the simple fact that we have a chat function on Zoom or Teams uh, is actually very attractive for students to ask questions, to participate. So and that uh, they don't like to, you know, voice their, uh, uh, you know, their voice, which is something that is not easy to do in the traditional classroom environment. And then the second that in terms of efficiency and flexibility. Um, you know, increasingly we see more students uh, like the what we call the you know uh, asynchronous online mode. That yeah, means yeah. that you don't really have a synchronous interaction like the one we're having right now. But basically, you have videos, and uh, you know, and for for many students, actually, it's uh, besides the flexibility and convenience as one aspect is that it's actually much more you know, you know, um, accessible to them to learn because you know, first of all, you have videos, you have materials. Uh, that you can do on your own uh, pace, and uh, it's actually more conducive to their own learning uh, pace. Unlike being in the classroom with 50 or 100 or uh, several hundred students and essentially listening to a lecture, you cannot go back, you cannot rewind, and there's as many times you can ask the professor, repeat that, repeat the other. Here you can just short segments, and uh, sometimes I, I always joke that, uh, you know, as a faculty, when you record something, when you videotape something, it's better than just talking extemporaneously. So basically, you get the instructor saying exactly, you know, in a very succinct fashion, you can play it as many times as you want. So that's a mode that I like to learn more as opposed to just sitting in the classroom. So I often joke with some of my colleagues to say, well, you know, the fact that you have a face-to-face -face environment doesn't necessarily, you know, is not necessarily the best means for people to learn, not for everybody else. Uh, at least. So in that sense, uh, you know, several students, several learners uh, have different ways of learning and these, uh, you know, different modes can be actually more, uh, you know, more conducive and uh, more appropriate for them. And 10 seconds, because this is really important, I think, right? So, so let's talk about this, right? The idea of stopping a lecture or a meeting, going back to it later and re-catching that 10 minutes that you were kind of not catching, but you really want to get better. That's, that's brilliant. Um, and, and the thing we need to be careful about, again, is that we, we're looking at a lot of various studies about this, 
is that one of my colleagues, uh, um, Linda Henkel, Dr. Henkel has been uh, noted for some research she's done on essentially per memory, what we collect and keep in our brain versus what we take pictures of. And ultimately what, what we find or what she's found is that if you take a picture of something, like say walk through the art museum with a camera and take pictures of what you want to remember, now go away for say a week or a month, now send another group in same day without the camera, go away for a month, talk to both of them about what they remember. And, and typically it's gonna be the people that didn't have the camera that remember the most details about what they've done. So, so again, it goes back to the hybrid nature of this. We, we can't go to one, we can't have the other, but we can readapt, we can adapt and redefine what are the best purposes for that recorded version but not to forget that there are also tremendous benefits to the face-to-face -face that we might not know yet. Absolutely. So, so Scott, I'd like to volley it back to you uh, to close us on, okay. on the global mindset and the interdisciplinary, because it seems to me that when even we talk about our, our um, agility to be hybrid is telling us that we're already learning how to be interdisciplinary. So go, Scott. All right. So as administrators, as we think about right uh, about this interdisciplinarity, um, we oftentimes may go to think more about the departments themselves. What Paul did today for us was remind us it's not a question about the faculty or the department. It's a question about the students, because what we need to be doing in this new approach is training for jobs that aren't here yet. That means that what has been decentered, professionalized skills, decentered, that's secondary. What do we need? We need adaptation and we need interdisciplinarity. Now, let me just take a quick look at my notes here. So for the adaptation, that's all about, right? That is the skill set. That's the new critical meta skill for getting a job and keeping a job and keeping productive in the new economy that we're going to emerge in, right? That is the skill we need to teach is adaptation, right? How do we do that though? We move to interdisciplinarity, right? Interdisciplinarity does a lot of things. It breeds innovation. Because what happens is all of a sudden, the way I've been thinking about something as an anthropologist suddenly completely changes the moment I get to talk to somebody that's way deep in neurology. Because I just learned something that was way out of my normal routine, but it has everything to do with what I need to think about, right? And so, so I love that. Um, ultimately, what I want to say is that interdisciplinarity in the higher ed sense, right? And Paul, I'd love for you to just let us know what you think about it. But Interdisciplinarity in, in the higher ed sense is basically a parallel to what we're doing everywhere else. It's just we're kind of using a different approach. But this interdisciplinary is a meta-level LAOP ethos, right? It's basically saying that we need uh, to train in method and in critical consciousness and in connectivity as opposed to actual programs or uh, the, the kind of those, those are the secretaries. So here we go. Let me give a lesson from plant breeding, right? From my own work in the past who, who've been through this and I saw a tremendous, a, a, a tre tremendous um, adaptation who did this work already. Plant breeding, collaborative plant breeders in the worst and most difficult growing environments in the world. The first step we did was we went in and we basically looked at the conditions of people in places where we didn't live and we said, hmm, you have a really tough time here. You should grow this. And we gave them answers. So the first level was give them their answers. Then all of a sudden we realized those answers stopped working. Why? They weren't personalized to the location, right? 
come back. We say, oh, so what we have to do is talk to them. So we made up participatory plant breeding. So let's go in and participate with our colleagues, with our, with our employees, with our farmers. And participation literally boiled down to nothing but, so what do you want to grow? Oh, okay, hold on. Then we go back and we're still picking for them, right? So we're participating, but they're participating. That's what you get that ribbon that nobody likes. Throw it out. So the real thing that we moved to was collaborative. When we realized that when participatory, when participation failed, when directing, direct intervention failed, we went to collaboration in which we basically said, we have to actually learn first from these very people to understand not just what they want to plant, but what makes them happy, what is causing them the biggest trouble in their life, and what would they love to see for their children into the future? A much bigger picture, a much bigger discussion. To tell a plant breeder you have to redo your whole career and spend some time figuring out how to live in a, say, Malian village, that might not be easy. But if we do interdisciplinary studies, someone like me can under understand enough about plant breeding that I can engage not only with a farmer who hasn't even been to a formalized school, but also with the scientist who is one of the tops in the world. And so ultimately, I want to embrace Paul's uh, uh, interdisciplinarity plea. And I want to make sure that people outside of higher ed understand that he's not just talking to educators. He's talking about a meta level, a way to produce knowledge cross-culturally, whether that's in your organization or whether that's in your hospital or whether that's in your family or your community. Interdisciplinarity, multi perspectives, trust Picasso. Okay. I'm just going to add one thing. It accelerates that it accelerates us to move from a knowledge based to a wisdom based economy, because with more interdisciplinarity, you get more wisdom and you start shifting from just about what you know to what you do with what you know. So anyway, just I wanted to add a layer to that. Paul, what are your thoughts? Well, actually, very good, uh, you know, both the excellent comments, but actually, and that's exactly, I mean, the, the third part, uh, what you nicely described is what we actually want to instill and uh, teach our students and uh, to learn how to learn, you know, to learn how to collaborate, to understand how to seek solutions. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, 10 years from now, you know, the jobs that are here may be different and they need to adapt, they need to learn how to learn for these new jobs, how to use you know, technology, how to use the data, how to, you know, interact with, uh, you know, other disciplines and, you know, other, you know, cultures to be able to, to, add, to be more adaptive. So actually, one thing I'd like to say also here in terms of, and given that uh, uh, we're talking about personalization here, but I would say within the, of course, we talk about, you know, multidisciplinarity as a, as a concept, but, you know, for the individual, it's like a different set of, uh, uh, you know, more personalized uh, you know, from this whole universe of things. So I mentioned, you know, the several examples with the, you know, the doctors, with the, you know, the business training or uh, statisticians with also the business, uh, you know, component or even more specialized aspects. So basically what we are trying to do and within this, you know, universe of multiple options and multiple, you know, disciplines, we'd like each of our students to actually kind of, you know, have a more of a personalized curriculum. So obviously, you know, we cannot have a, you know, a course for each student, but uh, what we can do is two things. You know, every student, uh, you know, can have a very unique uh, curriculum. So basically, and it can be because they have, you know, more opportunities to interact with other colleges or even within their, you know, core discipline, they can have, you know, a very unique personalized curriculum. So in theory, you know, each of our students out of our 7,000 students can have a totally different curriculum that is almost, you know, distinct from, you know, anybody else. 
Uh, the second part that we, we try to, to, to develop to have this very personalized experience, besides, of course, the you know, personalized advising, but also to have this uh, mentorship uh, program. And basically, we'd like uh, you know, each of our students to be mentored by, you know, depending on their interest, you know, senior executive, a, a successful you know, person in industry, ideally you know, in the field uh, that uh, you know, she or he you know, would be you know, interested in pursuing. And that provides both the, the, the mentorship, obviously, but also the, uh, the guidance and uh, understanding you know, how can I be you know, that person in 10, 20, 30 uh, years. So that aspect, I think, uh, provides a very true personalized experience in terms of the curriculum and also, you know, working with, in our case, mostly, you know, our successful alumni to mentor students. So that provides a true personalized experience that, uh, uh, you know, we can actually, you know, make uh, their, their education quite uh, unique. Well, you know, as we close here, Scott, you know what I just heard Paul say? What's that? That, that uh, what uh, this is all coming back to is we're trying to create new environments, new systems, new methods that embrace the individual in, their, in the totality of their experience at the C.T. Bauer uh, College of Business. In other words, he's taken us, Paul has taken us from the shift from results to methods. He's taken us from the shift from diversity to inclusion. He has taken us from the shift to remind our listeners, the five shifts of leadership in the age of personalization from tribal to human. He has taken us to the shift from mission to contribution. He's making the shifts unknowingly in recreating a model that was built for the individual. That's my take. And it's all being driven by the recognition that inclusion is a growth strategy. I absolutely love that. If, if I could just for my final point, Glenn, just a quick one. And that is, um, I, love, I love how we're talking about the new opportunities for uh, training our students in AI and, and other sort of technical things. And it's really, it's where we're going. But I wanna remind us how dangerous it is that when we see new things that we don't yet really have fully worked out, our inclination and our proclivity, even without knowing it, is going to subconsciously or even consciously go straight back to what we were doing before. And the reason I mention this is that AI perhaps is, and neural networks are perhaps one of the most dangerously un misunderstood things that are going on in the development of humankind as we speak, right? And, and I'm not talking about the apocalypse of, or the singularity. What I'm talking about is basically AI and democracy are very similar and that they are human made. And therefore, when they are created, they are created with all the potential for innovation, but all the potential for destruction and exclusivity that still exists and has often existed in most human societies. So as we play with these new technologies as gateways into our future for adaptation and innovation, let's be very conscious that unless we do the sciences that are informed by and perhaps even explored by, in terms of the moral dimensions, by arts and the humanities, we are lost. So when we're being inclusive, let's not just be inclusive about people, let's be inclusive about knowledge production systems and recognize that as important as quantum mechanics and computing are, unless they're informed by the humanities and the arts, we're just gonna recreate inequalities in a much more difficult way to knock them down. With that, I'll close. 
Paul, any final comment? Uh, you know, excellent uh, discussion. Actually, I, I'll just comment on uh, Scott's point. I mean, yes, artificial intelligence is definitely has you know great potential, and uh, we'll talk about the, the potential uh, greatly. And I think it can help us in multiple ways to, to automate things, to streamline, to make us uh, you know more intelligent. And actually, I personally prefer the, the concept of more like augmented intelligence. So of course, you know, you know, as human beings, how we use artificial intelligence to make a you know, overcome our limitations, uh, leverage the, you know, the advantages of uh, computation that machines uh, have and the, uh, you know, the kind of uh, the more objective, uh, you, know, you know, calculations and ideally the biases, and I will get to that. But yes, I mean, obviously AI has uh, tremendous, uh, uh, you know, challenges in terms of, uh, you know, allowing kind of, uh, you know, machines to make decisions. And that's kind of the whole idea of automation. But we make the machines, so that's still yes. us. Well, eventually, our qualities will still be in those machines, even if we think they're not. Just because we hand it over to the machines, they can't fix it unless we fix it first, because they're doing what we told it to, even if it's AI. Well, of course, the just just to push back on that. I mean, of course, yeah, you, please. You, train, you train them to to make decisions, and of course, based on their decisions and what they try to optimize, they will keep making the decisions that they, to optimize what we told them to do. So, in that sense, uh, you know, of course, you know that's where the biases come into play. And uh, you know, in terms of decisions and so forth. But actually, I would say that I would just make it even simpler. And uh, that, that you know, it's actually a more of a technology. And who owns the AI uh, will actually be you know, we create this you know, uh, the potential inequality, the digital divide uh, is becoming a, you know a major issue. So those who have the technology, the data, the artificial intelligence will get better and better, and you know, automate and you know, do things uh, more efficiently and more effectively. And those, you know, what I use, I use the word, uh, you know, being automated out, essentially your job becomes, uh, you know, irrelevant or is done by machines. Uh, so, and basically, you know, the digital divide will continue to, to increase. So in everything we discussed, that's something to always keep in mind, you know, how do we ensure that, you know, more of, most of the population, uh, you know, can be part of this, you know, the, you know, the the use of technology, the use of artificial intelligence, because there's great potential, but it has to be done in a way that, uh, you know, it helps uh, the broader society and not just, you know. Oh, I was going to say, Paul, I'm with you on that. As long as you remember one thing, as long as we always remember that the machine is us. What do you think, Glenn? I think that we could have a whole other conversation about this. And I just want to thank Paul for taking the time to be with us you were awesome. great, Paul. And we got, I, I felt that we started building a lot of momentum uh, at midpoint and we found our groove. And I just want to thank Paul again for your invaluable insights. And, you know, thanks for um, just having a human conversation about yeah. what's best for our students, uh, what's best for society, and recognizing that, you know, we don't all have all the answers right now. We all have a long way to go. But the good news is uh, that we're, breaking ground on new ways of thinking. And that's all we could ask for right now because we're clearly all in the business of behavior change. We are all in the business of centricity of the individual. And these two things uh, within themselves uh, is a lot to handle. And there's many methods and discoveries uh, yet to be uh, found as we continue on this path forward. So Paul, thank you very much. As always, Scott, thank you. And I'll close by saying, as we always do, when when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't do what others won't and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. 
Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.